This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Darshan Johan. When I last spoke to Dr. Bridget Welch, who's a political scientist and an honorary research associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia, we unpacked a series of articles she had written for Malaysia Kini analysing ethnic voting patterns of GE15. Now, she recently penned another series of articles, this time looking at GE15 voting patterns beyond racial and religious lines. So in this episode, we are going to be unpacking Dr. Bridget's findings to get a general understanding of where we are politically today. Welcome to the show, Bridget. Good to have you back. Great to be back. So I want to start by asking, because you've done this whole host of articles looking at ethnicity and beyond ethnicity, how much does ethnicity matter within the context of Malaysian politics? So what do you think? (laughs) You're putting me on the spot, but um, I, I think it... It unfortunately it matters more than it should because of um, you know the politics of uh, you know the seventies, the eighties, um, post uh, May 13, nineteen sixty nine. It became a highly racialized political landscape. But what I hope is that there are other more important factors like class and and so on and so forth that even if it's not the key factor that drives people's voting patterns, I'm, I'm hoping that it is at least, you know, something that is gaining prominence, um, you know, year by year. So, like, let's say you put it on a scale from 1 to 100. What percentage do you think ethnicity matters? I think right now, 1 to 175. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, this is the, the starting point of mm-hmm. this conversation, right, about what about beyond ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So what we do when we look at uh, at weighing different factors is we look at how much they become the the weight of influencing voting behavior, right? And we compare different factors to each other. So what I look at in my mix are, are things like class, mm-hmm. um, gender, generation, urbanization, uh, um, these kind of factors, and ethnicity. We put them together, right? And you know. The perception, the public discourse, the analysis, the campaign strategies start from a place where it's 75 to 80 percent determined by ethnicity. Uh, survey companies, uh, other analysts, they only focus largely on ethnicity, nothing on else. My data and my analysis suggests that uh, GE15 was very similar to GE14 and that ethnicity mattered about 40 percent, 40 so that means in terms of these other factors coming in, there are about 60%. And of course, they get so little attention about why, what is happening, why, what's going on, you know, include, especially the, real, the second most prominent factor, which is class. Uh, which we'll come to in our conversations. Right, but I would say to you that, you know, the reason I did this separate series is to draw attention to these other things. They're harder to uh, analyze because they take more work. And and in the case of uh, uh, class and urbanization, I had to create my own data set, which I've done over the last 20 years, uh, <laughs> but it, I've updated it. It takes a lot of time to do interviews and go down to the field right. to check each of the polling stations uh, to see what's going on there. But beyond that, I think that the other factor is, is that uh, that the conversation isn't about them. And then the other thing to keep in mind that all of these factors are proxies for other forces that are in the society. 
the conversation about voting in Malaysia doesn't go there. And it, and it does in other countries right? because the ethnic paradigm is so pronounced. And even the point I would make about the ethnic paradigm is that people don't talk it about why is it that Malays do this? Right. <laughs> you know, or why is the Indians do that? Right. Uh, you know, in, in this area, because they don't want to see uh, beyond a particular thing that's easy for them to see, as opposed to the things that are more difficult in a more complex society. So let's talk about some of the points you just brought up. Um, you start your analysis, um, the, the recent series of analysis on gender voting patterns by pointing out something very interesting. And that is when looking at gender, traditionally the attention is on female candidates and not necessarily the political behaviour of women voters. Could you unpack that distinction and explain why, while the former is important, the latter is perhaps even more so? So, you know, it's the easy things that people like to talk about, right? right? Uh, you know, we can look at how many candidates, female candidates there are and how many female females won parliament. And in fairness, you know, there's not even enough conversations about this. Right. <laughs> um, and the fact that women candidates are often fl- slated against other women candidates and some of the parties uh, put the women candidates in seats that aren't very competitive. But uh, that's the easier part of looking at gender analysis and looking at uh, the issues. The fact is, is that both women and men uh, and voters have very different types of issues, right? So, and it's not just women, it's men as well. So, for example, men uh, traditionally often may be working away from their home. So it's harder for them to come back to vote. And so this is why one of the reasons why we see that men voted less than women. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this, of course, speaks to a point that I made regularly throughout my series, the need for uh, a better electoral system. You know, today I'm in Thailand. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Thailand is that Thailand has a optional early voting system for everyone. Anybody right. can sign up on the website to vote early a week or before the election. That's fantastic. So two million people did. Uh, and, you know, so students who had to go back to school or people who did that, they organized their schedule around early voting as opposed to the actual election day. So there are lots of options out there to cause this to address these issues. But going back to the issue of gender, what we see is a situation where, you know, uh, studies have regularly showed this globally, that gender affects turnout. Um, But traditionally, the argument has been is that women vote less because they have these responsibilities that I just spoke about. Uh, But what we see in Malaysia is they vote considerably more and they come out and they're steady in that process. And I think part of that has to do that they're actually in the in the places, but also because they, you know, the issues and the concerns, uh, the campaigns mobilized men. So men were very unhappy with UMNO, for example. So they chose to stay home uh, in this context. Well, the women just came out and they voted and they voted differently, as we saw from different support patterns. So the findings show that Parikata National gained a massive 22% of support among women, which is fascinating, right? Did Parikata National pay special attention to political behavior of women voters and the wants and needs of women? I would say yes, but not in the way that often the liberal media will talk about. You know, we're not talking about women's rights and 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 in terms of divorce or or support support of women in terms of the workplace and equal pay. Those right. not those types of issues. Okay. What happened is that Muhyiddin Yassin, uh, for all of his weaknesses, uh, one of the things his government did did have increasing social spending. 
And that had an impact on women because guess who is spending the money in the family mm-hmm. and who and those and were and those funds provided an important thing for family maintenance and, and survival during the COVID period. Um, and that was something that it was that really resonated uh, from the perspective of, of many female voters because uh, it affected the types of issues that they're concerned with, which are cost of living, they're concerned about family, they're concerned about the sustainability of the circumstances during COVID. Uh, these were they were the women were the ones on the front line in these sets of issues. Uh, the second thing is is that uh, that PN also had campaign that was addressed towards women. You saw a lot of influencers, um, uh, especially, you know, targeting uh, female voters, you know, and, you know, this is a lesson we can see historically, you know, in the U.S., for example, there was always the conversation about the soccer moms, right? <laughs> you know, uh, and the, in the case of uh, of Malaysia, you have the machis. Right. <laughs> and, and these are the, they have so much influence and uh, from a perspective of uh, not, you know, they come out uh, and. And they they make their voices heard and they don't and they and this is where this data tells us that you know you don't have to be screaming in national politics you just need to be voting now another aspect of your series um, is the aspect of generational voting um, as rightfully pointed out um, you know in your article a lot was said after GE15 about young people right um, which is that undi 18 crowd massively voted for Prikata national or pass what's worse is the rather unfortunate comments I must say made by some Harapan supporters who claim that and I quote this is why we shouldn't have implemented undi 18 in the first place I'm sure you have seen many of these comments as well. Um, others have also claimed that young people are politically illiterate and easily manipulated. Um, all sorts of comments, Bridget. So clear the air for us. What does your findings tell us about young voters, specifically the Undi 18 bloc? First of all, region also is another big factor that's different. It's different mm-hmm. states, different places, different dynamics. This will matter also in the state elections that are coming. Mm-hmm. So I just want to caveat that. But I would say the following. Uh, first of all, that youth voters were divided. Um, and in fact, some ways, the youth vote was almost even more polarized than the national vote. Uh, we saw um, almost the same amount of vote that went to PN went to PH. And in particular, it was UMNO that lost the vote. So uh, from a perspective of younger voters. So I think that the first thing is the data doesn't support the idea that it was, you know, uh, this massive PN move. Um, <laughs> it was a PN move. Right. Let's not let's not take that away. But let's also not over exaggerate it, which is what the way that people have done so far, I would argue. The second part about it is, is that, you know, youth became the the blame for for progressive voters. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, they uh I think in particular, right, uh, the group that was more PH uh, um, from the perspective of uh, were the Undi 18 voters, the ones who were actually given the right to vote. They were even, it was the pe- voters in their 20s who were a little bit more uh, leaning towards PN right. because they were, again, for the reasons we spoke about earlier about with women voters, they were the ones that were highly vulnerable. They were the ones that impacted by the lockdowns. They were impacted by the economy. And so therefore, uh, PN's advantage of having uh, being the kind of, quote unquote, uh, savior of uh, uh, spending, is, uh, which, of course, will all of that's coming in, out in the wash and will do in courts. We see a situation where um, uh, there, there are differences among youth 
itself. But they, what we have here is a very engaged youth. Right? And, and I think uh, uh, the studies by others besides myself, um, you know, reinforce the fact that the reasons why young voters uh, voted were not the reasons that the media felt the need to to, to articulate it to right. it. So, yeah, you know, they talked about political literacy. They talked about, you know, the conservative. They're captured by conservatives. <laughs> uh, they're they're all they're, they're all color green. Right. I mean, please step back. Uh, talk to young people. Listen to them. Respect them. Uh, and, and hear what they have to say. Now, yes, many of them made decisions on imperfect information aka the campaign that was driven by uh, perceptions of that you know the, the Perkins National wasn't even part of PAS right but i would argue that older generations did the same mm-hmm. uh, in the, in that to us probably to the same degree so i think that you know this blaming of younger people uh, uh you know is disproportionately unfair and inaccurate but this doesn't mean that these issues of political literacy the issues associated with um uh, the type of campaigning and the misinformation in the campaign were not real they are real huh? and i would say you know some of the younger voters because they had less experience in some of that more trusting in some ways uh they this had uh, uh, perhaps a little bit more of an effect um and this is where i think uh, one of the areas that i'm looking at in the state elections is to see what happens with the younger voters because now there has been so much not only blaming of them but also there's there have they've had a reality check after the election and you know keep in mind 50 percent of malaysians across groups are not engaged in politics Mm -hmm. they only come out and, and get engaged in politics during campaigns so youth were very much influenced by social media and 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 this type of medium uh, only provides limited information. Now they have more information at their disposal. So therefore, it'll be interesting to see how that affects their voting patterns uh, or not uh, in the next in the next series of polls. Like you rightfully pointed out, right? Um, while Prikata National didn't win this huge, massive, um, you know, block of youth support, they did uh, do pretty well, garnering around thirty-seven percent. I think you point out in your analysis of the under thirty popular vote, which is about two percent more than Harapan. Now, a common narrative. Um, is that those who didn't vote for Harapan are hardcore conservatives, like you painted, you know, they're consumed by this green wave and and so on and so forth. They are driven by religion, culture wars and and the like. But a, a sentence really stood out to me in your article. You suggest that, and I quote, what drove youth voting behavior in the GE15 results was not necessarily religious values, but a desire for a different type of governance. Could you expand on this a little bit more for me? Young people are fed up of the system that is the way it's been operating. Uh, you know, uh, a bunch of old men fighting among themselves, <laughs> Uh, talking to each other and, you know, not getting on with the job, not getting the job done, which is, you know, hey, where are my better wages? Where are my better lifestyles? Why do, Why can't I have an affordable car? Why can't I buy a house? Why can't I even afford a wedding? Hey, I can't even afford to take my date on a date. Right. Wow, how can I? <laughs> I mean, in this process, right. uh, in, in this area. So, um, you know, I don't want to say that they're begrudging these issues because I think a lot of these things are substantive 
demands. And the younger generation faces a lot of intensive pressures. So it is not uh, un, um, unsurprising that they would choose new alternatives. Uh, and what we have seen, you know, since arguably since 2008, 2013, but especially in 2018 and 2022, is that they choose new alternatives. They don't like what's on offer. I choose a new one. And I will look for something that is looking forward or is actually going to make my life better. So media and others talk about what the narratives are or even the kind of the grand ideals. I would say that there is a kind of focus more on uh what's going to happen to fix the situation now and how and and forward looking future looking types of situation now, how much does this, I wonder, tie into what you, you wrote um, in your first, um, you know, the, when you look at the ethnic voting patterns, where you highlighted that even the Malays, like how people like to paint them as this one monolith of a block, but even within the Malay community, there are so many different reasons why people cast their vote. Why we look at different factors as, a, as scholars and, and even practitioners and others is that we need to understand People are complex. Right. <laughs> they, there are different factors that shape these particular ways. You know, ethnicity provides a tool that people, they, they make it simple. Generation provides a tool that people want to simple, oh, it's easy to blame the young people in this process. But, you know, the youth are just like the rest of Malaysia. It's a very divided group of people um, who have different motivations of why they vote. And so when we look at them as a category, we have to understand why. So in scholarship, there are three there are two major paradigms that explain and account for generation voting. The first of which is that people are socialized into a particular voting because of the period of time that they live, what's called the cohort effect. And so uh, what that means is that they are product of COVID, for example, or a product of, of being part of a democratic, um, more open democratic space, which is it's easier to choose different choices and so forth. Uh, weak parties, so therefore they choose different ones because they don't mean that much to them, right? the cohort effect. The second uh, aspect is that they are a product of, of the time of their life. So uh, it, traditionally, people will say that, that when you have a family, uh, when you have high costs as you get older, you will tend to vote more conservatively because you take less risks in voting. When you're younger, you're willing to take more risk. So this is uh, the, the life cycle effect, what, uh, what, is it, what it's called. And so what we see are both things going on in generation voting. But disproportionately, what I find in the analysis is the cohort effect is quite pronounced. It's mm -hmm. ironic. So for example, even now we see among the generation of now people in their late 50s and 60s, people who were shaped by reformacy period of the, of the, 19, the late 1999s. They always have that bump up right. towards Pakatan Harapan compared to other areas. While we see you know, older voters traditionally being with AMNO and BN, and it's still we still see that, right? Because they're socialized and they, and they remember a different type of AMNO, even though the AMNO has, uh, today has changed. So the cohort effect, I think, is very important. Uh, but I do see that there are other things that are going on. On the show with me today is Dr. Bridget Welch, Honorary Research Associate at the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia. After the break, we talk the politics of class. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dr. Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Bridget Welch, Honorary Research Associate at the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute, Malaysia. And we're unpacking Bridget's series of articles which takes a look at GE15 voting patterns beyond ethnicity. So, Bridget, now you debunk a lot of myths in your analysis which I really love. One of them is the whole framing of the urban-rural divide. Now, you wrote, and I quote, levels of urbanization have been politically stereotyped. Early studies tied levels of urbanization to race, a mindset that is still deeply embedded in politicians socialized before the 1980s. So tell me, Bridget, what are politicians of the 80s getting wrong? Well, so many things. <laughs> Not just urban rural. The politics of the 60s, politicians right. of the 60s and 70s are also getting them wrong. So it's before the 80s, you know, before right. the 80s. Uh, implicitly, I'm including, you know, going back to M to H to right. others uh, in mm -hmm. that context. But um, first of all, uh, there is not an appreciation uh, of how urban areas have become very different. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges uh, for Malaysia right now is to have a, a fairer electoral system. And uh, and malapportionment is horrible uh, from a perspective of urban areas. The voters count so little in the urban areas compared to more um, uh, to the rural areas uh, or even parts of Saban Sarawak. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I was very, you know, so happy about, for example, in Johor, when when Hasni was running, he wanted to have a one of the things in his election manifesto was to reduce malapportionment in Johor, which makes complete sense, because guess what? Who are the people who are living in the urban areas? Malays. Right. Right? So you have, and so the ethnic paradigm is, is tied very much to the urban rural paradigm. It was, uh, and that was more relevant um, in the 60s. The, uh, and after urbanization in the 70s and 80s, it doesn't matter as much. Uh, uh, what we see is, a, uh, you know, a lot of these cities. Um, so, for example, I've been looking at the seat of Alostar in Kedah, um, uh, which I find a, a fascinating seat. Uh, to look at because it's, it was a seat that Pakatan Harapan had and then lost. Uh, and uh, so why did it lose? Partly ethnicity, but partly because of what are the dynamics that are happening in that city, right? right? Uh, you know, in this, uh, in terms of the, the, the nature of how patterns have shifted. Um, the second thing that has happened is that, you know, it, there's, there's this kind of um, stereotype about urban versus rural voters. You know, rural voters are, have, are, embody negative stereotypes. Mm -hmm. right? They're seen as let more, less educated, poor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All right. You know, which, by the way, get a life All right? uh, in that context. And then urban voters are seen as wealthy. They're seen as the, the smart, no, progressive, know, know everything, uh, you know, <laughs> and also I would say get a life. <laughs> the fact is, is that what we have is poverty in all areas. Right. Um, and we have a situation where, um, uh, you know, the whole, the society, sources of information, issues of wealth, they have changed. Now, that doesn't mean that being in a small town and being in rural areas doesn't have a different quality of life. They tend to know the candidate. They have a different way of engaging politics. It's more personalized. Those things do matter. Uh, but, they, but the stereotypes about them have been so colored by ethnicity and colored by particular paradigms that we haven't been able to, to look at these other things that matter, you know. And even the whole development model of Malaysia has been so urban-centered as opposed to looking at these other communities. And, you know, in some ways, while, while urban-rural dynamics are not as important as they used to be, 
because society has become over 70% urbanized based right. on uh, UN figures and so forth. Uh, and there has been a, a sharing of information and, and, and digitalization and so forth. Uh, I would say what we do have is we do have some important questions about urban-rural divide from a policy perspective, which I talked about in my piece, that are still very, very relevant. And so, you know, we need to take that conversation. Uh, voting provides a lens, right? And, a, and an analysis of uh, voting allows us to look at the kind of the specific policy questions and to understand how place really matters, right? Place as a, as a totality, not just in a, from a one-dimensional element. Now, you talk also talk about the, the Felda areas in your analysis, bec- and you point out how Abno Barisan National, um, the, their support continues to wane, um, you know, since the the later stages of the Bosco era. But one area they are still relatively strong is the Felda areas. You found that they garnered around 46% of the popular vote among Felda residents. What would you say accounts for this? You know, Felda was a an Amna scheme. And, you know, it, it and the Amna roots uh, are are you know, intergenerational, you know, uh, family is a real important factor in shaping voting. Uh, you know, if fam- you know, people would take up, used to be the argument that people would go, you know, go back to the vote in Kampong, and then they would actually, you know, change their parents' votes, right? But now often what we saw in, in, in GE15 is the parents' vote also influenced the children, right, <laughs> who are more undecided about all the different sets of choices. Right. So it's going both ways. Now, Felda areas are areas that where people were given land, they were given uh, livelihoods, they were given services. You know, it's not a surprise uh, that they continue to support BN more than they do the other parties. But PH had made gains in Felda areas hmm. in 2018. They lost those to PM this time, in part because, you know, we have to look at what Mujidin Yassin's government did involving Felda areas. There were uh, there were actual policy gains for for Felda communities, and he was rewarded, uh, and his coalition was rewarded. And while to be fair, some of those policy shifts changed under Pakatan Harapan, um, uh, and were only implemented under Muyadin Yassin. The fact is is that Muyadin Yassin gets the credit for that uh, um, in terms of helping to stabilize uh, and reduce debt of Felda settlers <laughs> in that context. Let's also talk about perhaps my favourite aspect of um, when we discuss politics, um, which is about class. You point out that Pakatan Harapan decisively won wealthier voters and only a small share of the lowest income voters. My question, Bridget, is what does it mean to be a quote-unquote progressive party, especially one that sometimes labels itself as centre-left, if they fail to unite working class voters, especially those of a lower income bracket? I would say that what we see is we have to be um, to unpack class a little bit, mm. right? The argument that so- socialists will make is that, you know, the, that you have to bring attention to the rights of the poorest and, the, uh, and economically in order to transform the society, right? I think that lower class voters are of a complex mix of different type of voters. 
they are not just workers or uh, people who work in the labor classes. Right. Many of them are people in agriculture or in the informal sector, uh, are part of part of even government service right, in terms of the, the wage structure. So I think that, you know, the first point I would make is we have to look more carefully at who these people are right, in this context. And again, the argument has always been to see them through an ethnic lens. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of the biggest questions from a policy perspective is to understand the causes and the sources of poverty in Malaysian society. And they're very complex. They're cultural, they're economic, uh, they're involving the political the relationship to the state. Uh, there's so much room to rethink these types of issues. So, um, now, in terms of Pakatan Harapan's engagement on those issues, you know, they continue to follow the dominant paradigm. Uh, they think about that this issue is about a matter of distribution. If we just give them enough that they'll be happy, all right, and then and then they'll continue to support us in this area. But I think this is why these policies are are really, you know, they treat the poor as objects, <laughs> not as, uh, as 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 agents uh, of their own making of, of changing the, the processes of society and having different reasons to be there. Um, and I and that's why, you know, I, I, I it is useful to start thinking about lower class voters and the lower class community in a very different type of way. And 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 progressive is is not just about changing incomes. Progressive is about changing lifestyles and changing mindsets. So what I find curious, I, I guess it, this goes to your point, um, which is the, uh, the complexity of, you know, even if you're looking at a specific ing- income group, you know, there are layers of complexities there, which is why I find uh, curious that Perikata National's popularity among lower income voters, because they are relatively popular among lower income voters, but at the same time, they are nowhere close to being a party that centers around class struggle. So what accounts for that popularity? The same thing I've highlighted uh, in, in, the, in our interview so far is that they were the ones who delivered uh, better social safety net dynamics and they protected those who were more vulnerable at a time when they needed to be protected. Uh, and, you know, this would have, ironically, I think almost every government would have done that, except the Mahathir government. Um, but I would say that the the others' governments uh, would have done that. Uh, uh, but PN was at, there at, the, at that time. So I think, you know, it's about putting and recognizing the issues of sources of vulnerability. PN continues to try to use that as a, a strategy. You know, this whole co- debate about the EPF is about that. I mean, it, it, it's an irrational policy that is destroying livelihoods down the line from the perspective of, you know, letting people take all their savings out. Uh, But the fact is, is that it is it is driven by the sense that we're going to allow you to have agency at the same time we're protecting you uh, in this context. So it is, I think, uh, the fact that they were seen by that government was actually very important. Um, And the conceptualizations of of how we see how Malaysians see poverty or understand poverty, how they uh, look at um, the issues of class, how they understand where the divisions are, are uh, you know are things that ha- that I, I think are evolving and need to change. Right? You know, t- over twenty percent of voting was determined by class status. That's not an insignificant thing. That's one of five factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we can see that 
this is a particular challenges. It's a challenge for the Anwar's government because his class comes from wealthier people and he has policies that are trying to support, to win the support of younger, of, of less wealthy people. All right. Uh, and it is a, a situation for PN because they don't have the support of wealthy people uh, overall, uh, um, and therefore they don't get the sense of the confidence that they can manage the economy and other factors. But at the same time, they have the numbers that come from from support from from lower class voters and uh, less economically advantaged voters. So there's these dilemmas, right? Uh, and there's no real policy. The policy discussions are are and the and the paradigms are still similar for both. Uh, so therefore. It, it, it means the, this calls for a changing of the policy paradigm, thinking about poverty, um, about not just about distribution, but about job creation um, and about uh, empowerment of communities. Bridget, we could do an a entire podcast on the question that I'm about to ask you, but to touch on it here, um, do you see parallels between the popularity of let's say, Perikata National, and the general rise of popularity of ethno-religious right-wing parties across the globe, because we are seeing that trend, um, whether it's in India, even in European countries, in Scandinavian countries, um, across the globe in in the US and, and so on and so forth, in the UK, where there is this growing inequality over the past two to three decades, especially. At the same time, you're seeing this rise of right-wing populism as well. Um, How do you see it in in the Malaysian context? So the article I have coming out, I think this weekend, depending on when my publisher decides (laughs) to to put it out, uh, is called The Rise of Neo-Malayan Ethno-Nationalism. And it emphasizes that same point, uh, which is the the synergy between displacement, the lack of social mobility, um, and the rise of more rightist uh, uh, ethno-nationalist rhetoric, um, which I think is being very much driven in the context of Malaysia. Um, it's a different type of ethno-nationalism than the past. Um, and I do think that you know these are uh, forces that are driven by global phenomena. They're driven by you know international narratives that people pick up that also the way politics is being shaped, but it's also by the conditions on the ground that people are facing. Um, And these are real issues that, that, you know, you can't talk about the dynamics in the Malay community and recognize that there's a lot of people who have been displaced by the way the economy is moving. And, you know, you know, there is such the ethno- tensions, the blaming of the community, the demonization of the community, the Islamophobia, which is just, it's its horrible. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. It is horrible in Malaysia, the Islamophobia that we're mm-hmm. seeing. But what we also see is that, the, that there isn't this recognition of how conditions of place, conditions of the circumstances have helped to shape the paradigm. It's not just about, you know, the schools or the politicians. It's also about the socioeconomic conditions that people are facing in their everyday lives. A line that really struck a chord with me in your series of analysis is, and I quote, those who profess equality for different ethnic communities do not necessarily extend this to those of different incomes. Could you explain the importance of looking at issues through an intersectional lens, perhaps anchored by class politics? Malaysia has to make hard choices, right? Uh, you know, uh, about taxation, about uh, distribution of policies. So the debates about distribution have been largely focused through an ethnic lens. Um, uh, and what is the one of the most positive legacies of the Najib government? 
Yes. Let me pause a moment to repeat that. <laughs> not you go. Um, what is that? He introduced a non-needs-based policy initiative through BRIM. Now, it became highly politicized. There were lots of problems with it, but it began a different paradigm in the way that people begin to look at eth- look at politics, to look at distribution. And so now we have a distributive discussion based on needs-based, uh, and the current government is looking at issues of how to change subsidies and, and how to, to become targeted subsidies and others and introduce new paradigm, new initiatives in this area. Now, these things will have implications. They will have blowback. People talk about and profess about wanting an equal society. But when they're having to make those choices, how much are they willing to make those choices, especially at a time where people have not yet recovered from the COVID pandemic uh, in this area? Uh, you know, it, it, they might accept uh, a little bit uh, associated with um, uh, higher taxation. But keep in mind, only a small percentage of Malaysians pay taxes anyway. You know, and a lot more people pay money to zakat, which, which by the way, there isn't much accountability in what that money is being spent on. Uh, so I think that what we what is going to happen is this point is we're going to have a a, a, a different a clash of these conversations that, that are inevitably going to come out, um, and it has to be one that is navigated very carefully in this context because it is one that you know goes to the heart of what type of uh, society. Malaysia wants to be, um, and and how it can, and the potential it can be. The challenge is, is that this government thinks the society thinks the government can solve all the problems. Uh, well, in fact, you know the government governments are become weaker in the contemporary right. uh, world now. So now the challenge is is to ha- allow other forces in society to help to ameliorate some of the problems. Uh, and how do you find a way to make that happen? Uh, you know, from a perspective, voting provides an analysis of voting provides a lens for us to see these other bigger issues. Um, you know, uh, no question uh, people have double standards in how they see issues of equality. All right, Bridget, before we wrap this conversation up, you wrote about 11 articles in total, I think, unpacking GE15, maybe more. Where are we today as a nation? How do we move forward? Well, these articles are being transformed into a book with a lot more interesting data looking at case mm-hmm. studies. So the, that book will be out later in the year. I'm just pitching it. Really Sorry, looking forward much. to it. <laughs> um, you know, where are you, where is Malaysia as a nation? Uh, I think that Malaysia is a nation that is coming to itself. I always use the phrase cautiously optimistic about when I talk about Malaysia, because I, you know, it's whether or not we see the glasses half full or half empty. Uh, you know, I wrote a piece uh, for Between the Lines on um, Malaysia's last five years, um, and uh, and and I talk about how people voted for change, how people uh, that that people are speaking out and becoming more empowered. Uh, you know, there are more conversations about policies, even if there should not, even if there's still not enough. Um, you know, I think that this is not to say that we don't talk about we acknowledge the things that that where the potential can be. The last Last five years have been uh, of testing times of which Malaysians, I think, have come out, uh, passed the tests uh, and survived the tests. Um, not necessarily all thrived, uh, <laughs> but they have survived. And they and you know when you compare Malaysia to other countries in the world, you know there's there is a lot 
to be proud for. And there's a lot of and this transformation that Malaysian politics is going through it has been one where people have been been forced to become stronger, forced to become more resilient and have thrived in that and taken take and and grown from that. I mean, you know, you 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 look at the political noise in the discourse. Uh, there's so much um uh substance to it uh from the perspective of uh of what we would have seen politics even five before five years beforehand so where is malaysia as a nation it's moving forward thank you so much for joining me today most welcome and that was dr bridget welch honorary research associate at the university of nottingham asia research institute malaysia if you missed any part of our conversation you can check us out on podcasts on the bfm app bfm.my spotify apple podcasts or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from I do recommend you reading Dr. Bridget's series of articles on Malaysia Kini, which will be linked in the podcast description. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.